Revelation chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for this privilege of being able to come together for your provision for us of this place and for the provision of your word. We ask this morning that every word we speak, every thought we have, would bring honour and glory to you this morning. May the name of our Lord Jesus Christ be lifted up in this place. And Lord, as we leave this place today, may more of your word be planted in our hearts. May it take deep root and may it produce fruit for your name's sake this morning. So Heavenly Father, I pray that our hearts would be attentive, that our ears would indeed be open to your truth and that we would be able to discern more and more each day the truth from the lie. We thank you once again that we have our Lord and Saviour who watches over us. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. Last week we met for the first time, we encountered for the first time this fellow we call the Antichrist. And the Antichrist we saw was Satan's man, literally Satan's man. Uh, he will be a person who will open himself up and Satan will literally enter into him and steer him much like someone steers a car and does exactly, the car does exactly what they want it to do. He will be much like Judas. The Bible says in Luke chapter 22 verse 3, Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. We know that at a crucial time that Satan entered into Judas to do the work of betraying Christ. Judas, no doubt, opened up himself for that very thing. And we find in the scripture the same thing happening with this person. Satan will literally possess this person. He will empower him and this person will willingly give himself for Satan's purposes. We're now going to look at these next three verses. And these next three verses speak about, primarily, those people who choose to follow this imposter, the one we call the Antichrist. So it speaks about them, and it also speaks to those who choose not to follow him. So it speaks about those who decide to follow the Antichrist, and it speaks to those who decide to follow the true king, which is Jesus. Look at verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Now, by this stage, the vast majority of the world worships the beast. Many Christians have been slain. Many will be in hiding. Many will be in prison. Many will be tortured. Many will be imprisoned awaiting execution simply for believing in Jesus. The vast majority of people in this world will follow the beast. Scripture tells us that. They will live their lives for him. They will promote him and follow him and do what he says to the best of their ability. Now, worshipping the beast, I'm going to draw a comparison now. I'm going to, I'm going to outline or show the difference between, or the similarities between worshipping the Antichrist and the way we worship Christ. Worship is a, uh, an often misused term these days. Often when you speak of the term, or when people mention the term worship, the first thing that comes to people's minds is singing songs in church. And sometimes not, nothing more than that. But worship is a lot more than just singing songs to God. Worship encompasses the whole of a person's life, not just their singing voice. The term worship derives from an old English term, the worth-ship. worth-ship. It expresses the value that one puts on the object of one's devotion, attention, admiration. 
It speaks of someone who is worthy of that attention, of that honour, of that devotion. And this is what true worship is in the Bible. The devotion that one has and exhibits in their whole life. Whether you're in church, whether you're out of church, whether you're at work, whether you're, whether you're relaxing, whether you're with your family, with your friends, wherever you are, worship is everything you do in your life that brings honour to the devotion, to the, the one that you're devoted to. It's how much attention you give to that very thing. Now, we often speak about our society worshipping so many things, and it's very true, because most people spend the majority of their time focused on something other than God. They'll worship sports, so that the majority of time they will talk about, think about, concern themselves about, worry about, some sort of sporting activity or it could be their jobs or it could be a number of other things anything that concerns the majority of your life anything that has your heart more than than god you are worshiping pure and simple the bible says that we had to worship him with all our our hearts our minds our souls and our strength the problem is that people often get diverted from that. So true worship is having something that you find worthy of your attention, your time, your devotion. And we know that during the tribulation period that the majority of the world will indeed find worth in following this person called the Antichrist, they will devote themselves to him. They will adore him. They will follow him. To them, he will be wondrous. Now, there may not be churches devoted to him. There may not be the first church of the Antichrist. There may not be the first church of the beast or the second church of the beast or anything like that. They may not have songs devoted to him. But then again, Satan has never needed songs and has never needed churches to be worshipped. Satan has known that as long as he has a person's heart, as long as their heart is not focused on God, but focused on everything else, in a sense, they worship him. But in this time, they will be focused, their heart will be focused on one person, the man that he inhabits. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, as we look a bit more about this thing called worship. Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 says, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We find it acceptable to give Christ worship, our adoration, our attention, and our devotion because he is God in the flesh. That's why it's acceptable to worship him. We know that in worshipping him, we are worshipping God himself. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. When we follow Christ, when we devote ourselves to him, when we look to him as our example, our guide, we know that in doing so, we give God the Father the glory. Jesus was indeed worthy and is indeed worthy of our worship. He is worthy in every possible way of our adoration, our devotion, because of his character, because of who he is and because of what he's done. But just as the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus and is in Jesus now and is Jesus, so the fullness of Satan will dwell in the man of sin, the beast. Satan himself will inhabit the body of the Antichrist, and Antichrist literally means in place of Christ. Not necessarily against, but in place of. 
Revelation 13, 8 says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. If you go back a few verses, Revelation chapter 13, verse 3 and 4, it says, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world, look what it says, wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now, notice that two main ways people are reacting or, or they're, they're looking at this beast in this, these verses. It says, one, they wondered after him. Okay, So after they'd seen what he'd done and what power he has, it says they wonder after him. And then the second thing they do is they say, who is like him? Who is able to make war with him? Now, I want you to keep those two things in mind as we look at another passage of Scripture. And I appreciated Brother Hustler's message so much on our carols night. It was great the way he used the passage in Isaiah to bring out who Jesus was and why he was sent to the world and why he is worthy of our worship. Turn back with me there uh, now to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And I want to do a comparison between Jesus and the Antichrist. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Do you notice the first word in Jesus' name here? Wonderful. He is wonderful. And part of worshipping God is having wonder. Have you lost the wonder of God in your life? If we stop and lose that wonder of who God is, how incredibly He is, and, and what He's done for us, how do you then ascribe worth to Him? The first thing that Jesus is called is wonderful. And in a nutshell, Jesus is wonderful because of who He is and what He's done for us. But then it says, if you remember, the world wandered after the beast. Revelation tells us that the Antichrist will truly be wonderful to the people of this world. They will look at him in wonder. The same way we look at Christ and God in wonder. He will be to them awe-inspiring. He will be to them without equal. They will look to him and ascribe much worth to him, so much worth that they will worship him. Let's look at the next thing that, the, that, that Scripture says in Isaiah. It calls Jesus the Counselor. Jesus truly is the one who can answer every problem in a person's life. Any need that we have, any problem we have, as Brother Chris shared with us the other night, Jesus is the one to go to. He has the answer. But then the Antichrist the Bible says, will be seen as a great diplomat in the world. He will be the one who it seems will be able to answer the world's needs, to provide solutions to the world's big problems. He is going to be the one they look to for help with everything that's going on. He will be seen as the world's great counsellor. Jesus then called the mighty God. As a son of God, all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. He indeed holds, the Bible says, the structure of this whole universe together with the word of his power. But the world will look at the Antichrist and say, who is like him? Can anyone make war with him? Can anyone beat him? There is no one who can beat him. The Antichrist will seem all-powerful even to be able to perform miracles and fool even the elect. Turn back to Daniel chapter 11 verse 36 as we look a little bit more at how this Antichrist declares who he is. Daniel chapter 11 verse 36. 
and the king shall do according to his will. And he shall exalt God. No, he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. What a perfect description. Do you remember last week's message? The, saint, the, the Antichrist, or sorry, Satan, thrown out of heaven, knowing he only has a short time to live, no chance of redemption. Locked up in this world, enraged against heaven, against God, and against those who God has redeemed. And the first thing he does is enter into a man and then proclaims himself to be God. And this is exactly what Satan did when he fell from heaven. Satan wanted to be God himself. He said, I will ascend into God's throne. I will be like the Most High. But when that failed, the next, the next only option that he had was to enter into a man here on earth after he was cast down from heaven. The Antichrist, indwelt by Satan, will proclaim what truly dwells in Satan's own heart. He's only going to puppet. He's only going to be the dummy that Satan talks through. He's going to call himself God. Now the next thing is that the Bible calls Christ the everlasting Father. Well, Satan will call himself the Eternal One if he calls himself God, and he'll call himself the Father. But in a sense, Satan is a father. In a sense, he is. The Father of all those who follow him. When Jesus was disputing with the Pharisees as to why they were not understanding what he was saying, he said the reason they couldn't accept what he was saying was because in John chapter 8, verse 44, ye are of your father, the devil. And the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. In a sense, Satan is a father. The Prince of Peace. Jesus is the only person in our troubled world and in so many troubled hearts that can enter into a person's life and give them true peace. Because true peace comes from being at peace with God. True peace comes from being saved, being redeemed, having your sins washed away by the precious blood of a lamb that was slain and you understand how much God loves you from heaven. And you accept that you now find your value, your worth in him. That brings peace. What brings peace is knowing what your eternal destiny will be. That brings peace. It brings peace knowing that we have a saviour in heaven with the marks in his hands and his feet who is always watching out for us. That brings peace. It brings peace knowing that the Holy Spirit has indwelt your heart and now teaches you God's way. And when you see your life changing from the inside, that brings peace. God's word brings us peace. So having Christ in your life brings peace. But just as Christ brings peace, so the Antichrist will promise peace. He will be seen as a man of peace. He will be seen as the one who can bring peace to the world through diplomatic means. Do you see what's happening here? Satan is putting his man, the Antichrist, in place of Christ. Everything we look to Jesus for now, Satan will offer the same package in his man. Satan is the ultimate counterfeiter. Anyone know what the word counterfeiter means? Someone who can copy something nearly exactly to the original. 
And that's been the challenge for believers throughout the ages, hasn't it? That's been the challenge for mankind. To be able to distinguish between the true and the false. Because every time there's a true one, there's someone else who's making a, a counterfeit image of that and presenting it as the truth. How to distinguish between the true and the counterfeit. That is our challenge in our lives. The scripture says that God is the only one who is worthy of our worship. There is no one like him. He is the almighty. He is all powerful. He is the omniscient being. He knows everything. He is everywhere. He put everything into place. There is no one in existence who comes close to him. There is no one else worth imitating, following, devoting ourselves to apart from him. Exodus chapter 15 verse 11 says, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? God is wonderful. But unfortunately, Satan is the master counterfeiter. He cannot create anything of himself. He can't. He can only reuse. He can only corrupt what's already there. He cannot create anything for himself, but he sure can imitate. He can imitate God. He can fool men into believing that he is God and that he is worthy to be worshipped. As a result... He has fooled the world for generations, thousands of years. He has been able to fool this world into following him. And when it reaches the pinnacle of that, when he enters into one man and is able to persuade the world to follow him, that is his masterpiece. That's the grand counterfeit. When he replaces Christ with his man. And he'll be parading himself around this planet, declaring himself to be God, and the world will fall for it. Those, the Bible says, whose names are not written in the book of life. So how to distinguish between the real and the false? We'll answer that in a second. Let's take a look at those who failed to see the counterfeit and got drawn into it. It says in Revelation 13, 8, it says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. You know, there is something that Scripture guarantees. There's more than one thing that Scripture guarantees. One is when a person puts their faith in Christ and has their, their sins cleansed by the blood of the Lamb and is born again, the Bible guarantees them, Eternal salvation. But there is something else that's promised in Scripture. It also promises that those who worship the beast and receive his mark will be guaranteed a place in the lake of fire. Interesting, isn't it? It's almost the opposite guarantee. When a person puts their faith in Christ, gets born again, they are saved. Done deal. For all eternity, you can't be lost. But then if a person chooses to follow the Antichrist and has his mark put upon them, that's a done deal. There's no turning back. There's no chance for redemption. There's no chance for forgiveness. There's no chance to repent. It's done. The Bible guarantees that those who put their faith in the Antichrist will be lost. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. Look at the promise here. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast, and receive his image, and receive his mark in their forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. As a result of worshipping the beast and receiving his mark, you are guaranteed a place in the lake of fire. Guaranteed. Revelation repeats that again in, in chapter 20. It says, 
in Revelation 20.15, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Those whose names are not in the book are cast into a lake, a burning lake. And the registry of life belongs to Jesus. That's what the book of life is, isn't it? It's a registry of names. And who has the book? Who holds the book? Who reads the book? It's Jesus himself. The book belongs to him. And, it, and the names in that book, at the end of the day, are the ones who have put their faith in him. And he will read those names out and those names that are in his book can never be lost because he has guaranteed their salvation. That's an amazing thing. I've been thinking about that book for the last few days. Imagine that book. You're like a telephone directory, more or less. And you'd look and say, yep, in, edigidetti, in, Greg Hipworth, in. And we laugh at that. But you know something? It's beautiful to have your name in that book. There is, a, there is a point in scripture where, I haven't listed it today, where Jesus says that um, if we put our faith in him and, and, we, uh, and we don't turn away and then follow the Antichrist or whatever, he will not blot out the name. I get the impression from scripture that everyone's name originally starts off in the book. But then as you don't put your name, you don't put your faith in Christ, your name, your name is cancelled out. Those who worship the beast during the tribulation period will have worshipped the God really of their own image, made in their own image. With all their lusts and earthly desires and, and after they have persecuted the Christians and believers for the beast, they will be think that they're, they're going to be doing a good service for the world. They're going to be chasing after the ones who follow Christ because you know, the ones who follow Christ are the, are the ones who are you know, messing up the world. We're messing everything up. We're the ones who they're going to be pointing the finger at as time goes on more and more that we're the ones who have caused the problems in this world. But after they have fulfilled their lusts and desires and followed a God after their own image, they're persecuted for the beast, they've given their hearts to him, they will be utterly lost. Utterly lost. A bit like the days of Jeremiah, when Jeremiah said, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised. Their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. And that brings me to the next verse, verse 9. 13.9 says, If any man have an ear, let him hear. What does that mean? Don't we all have ears? Obviously not. The ones who hear, the ones who have an ear to actually hear, are the ones who have had their ears opened by God himself. Interesting, isn't it? Just as God was able to open the eyes of a blind person and made the deaf to hear... God has to open the ears of people to hear his message. Psalm chapter 10, Psalm 10 verse 17 says, Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou will, pre thou will prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause their ear to hear. Thou will cause their ear to hear. God will cause their ear to hear. God will prepare their heart. Why? Because it says, Thou hast heard the desire of the humble. In a nutshell, the ones who humbled themselves before God are the ones who have their hearing opened so that they may receive God's words and understand them. Humbleness is truly a big key in God's kingdom. It opens many doors. So how does one recognise, remember that question? How does one recognise the fake from the, from the real? The truth of the matter is that the word of God, the word of God is our 
uh, tool that we use to be able to recognize the false from the real. When, the, when a lie presents itself as a truth, if a person knows God's word well enough, he can recognize the lie. And how does one get to a stage where he, we can act, where he can actively worship Christ and Satan himself? Well, Jeremiah once again says in chapter 17, verse 23, But they obeyed not, neither inclined their ear, but made their neck stiff, that they might not hear nor receive instruction. Now, I told you the key to having your ears open to God's word is humbleness, correct? The opposite is becoming stiff-necked. What's stiff-necked? Another wonderful way of saying pride. Becoming proud, not wanting to hear. Stiff-necked is another word for pride. Turn to Matthew chapter 13, verse 9. Jesus opens with these words, Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Heard that somewhere before? And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? Get into verse 14. Jesus says, And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand. And seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Pride holds back a person from accepting and hearing God's word. When you are proud... You're falling into the very same sin that Satan fell into. And pride will stop God's word from entering your heart. Hearing is not just the sounds hitting your eardrums and vibrating them. Nor is it just vibrating your eardrums and registering a message in your brain. To hear properly after the sound has been processed by your mind and makes sense in your head you receive it into your heart. And your heart is prepared to actually take that word so it sinks into it. When God sent his son into this world, in Mark chapter 9, verse 7, it says, Hear ye him. Listen to what he's saying. This is the meaning of the parable of the sower and the seed. Careful. It says in Luke chapter 8, verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God, right? Chapter, uh, verse 12 says, And those by the wayside are they that hear. Then comes the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Just because the word, the word of God may even enter your heart doesn't mean it's actually going to stay there. Your heart needs to be prepared for it to go into and be dug into the ground and your heart needs to be a place of, of soil where God's word can take root. A person may indeed receive God's word into their heart, but it's only when the word has taken root, when it grows, when it produces fruit, that a, a person is, can be said to be saved. An unsaved can receive God's word. An unsaved can receive God's word even into their heart. But it can't take root. It can't grow. It doesn't germinate. That's the difference between the saved and the unsaved. The unsaved has a heart prepared. The ground has been thoroughly prepared for the seed to be planted. But pride is the opposite. If a person is proud, it's like throwing a seed on a piece of rock. The seed quickly springs up. But because the root can't take into the ground, it dies very quickly. 
And that's the same way when a person is proud. The heart is like a rock, like a stone. That's why our hearts need to be prepared. Now God, God made a way of, of humbling people's hearts, made a very good way of humbling people's hearts, and it's called the Ten Commandments. God's commandments have a way of breaking you. God's commandments have a way of showing you what a sinner you actually are. God's commandments have a way of breaking down the hard stones that are inside us when we realise how far we've actually fallen short. So then we have to humble ourselves when we realise our need. When you don't understand that you're a sinner, that you and I are sinners before God, and in need of a saviour, we will never come to the saviour for forgiveness and for salvation. That's why our hearts have to be prepared. And God's word prepares it. The Bible says that, that the Old Testament, that the law was given to be a schoolmaster that leads us to who? To Christ. The schoolmaster tells you exactly what your position is. Like a perfect mirror shows you this is exactly the way you are. I'm not looking too good in that mirror. When a person truly sees himself in that mirror, like Kelly was saying, it's a quiet ride home when you realise what a sinner you actually are. What do you do? I thought I was so good. I've got so many friends. People admire me. I mean, people like me. I'm a likeable guy. I've never done anything really bad, have I? But then you look at God's ten cannons that are pretty much pointed in your direction and you've broken all of them and they're all ready to shoot and you realise there is no hope for you unless you put your faith in that one who gave himself for you. So humbleness is the key to receiving God's word in your heart and allowing it to change you so not only is your heart changed but your mind is changed too. Because once it's in there and it starts growing, and this is why we look to God's word every week. We don't preach from psychology magazines or anything else. We look to God's word because God's word is a thing that can change you. And once you know enough of God's word, you begin to see the counterfeit. You begin to see, hang on a sec, that's not right. There is something wrong over there. It doesn't look like the picture that God's word is giving me. But along with that ability, along with the ability to see the counterfeit, and you can start pointing out the truth and the lie, then other people who don't see the lie begin to look at you and say, what's wrong with you? Packham, you're not accepting what I accept. Then you start to become a target. Because when you start pointing out things that other people accept more than readily because they don't have that ability to choose between right and wrong, then you become the legalist. You become a thorn in their side. Daniel is a wonderful example of how God gave a man understanding who humbled himself before him. Listen to this. Daniel chapter 10 verse 11 says, And he said unto me, O Daniel, O a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee and stand upright. For unto thee am I now sent. This was the angel Gabriel speaking to him. And when he had spoken his word unto me, I stood trembling. Then he said unto me, Fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that thou, that thou didst set thine heart to understand and did chasten thyself before God, Thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. When, that, when the angel Gabriel went to Daniel, because Daniel had chastened himself before God and wanted to know. Yeah, chastening requires a humbling of oneself. It requires you to look at yourself thoroughly with examination, and it literally means to look down upon yourself. To look down upon yourself, to submit yourself. Daniel was a humble man and because he was humble before God God said I'm going to tell you not only what's happening now I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the future I'm going to give you great understanding this brings us to our final point in the sermon 
verse 10 in chapter 13. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. And you might say, what does that mean? Killing with the sword and it's going to be killed with the sword? How is that the patience and faith of the saints? Well, go to Luke chapter 21 verse 20. Luke 21 verse 20. And we'll read to verse 28. This is going to give us interesting insight. Luke 21, 20. Look at Jesus' warning to his followers in his day. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, which means armies were around about, okay? then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these, for these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, the Jews. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be taken away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles unto the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for, for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to, to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. For my reading, this can only refer to the tribulation time. There are things in this passage that can only happen during the tribulation. It says in Luke in 25 to 27, There shall be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity to see and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear. When they see the things that are happening upon the earth, the powers of heaven are going to be shaken and then they're going to see the Son of Man coming in a cloud in glory. These very things happen during the tribulation period. These are the things that we spoke about a number of weeks ago. As we, as we looked at the unfolding of God's wrath upon the earth, we read these very things in previous chapters. Because the world had rejected God's authority and God's provision for them and had turned to their own ways rather, to his, rather than his. And in, during the stressing times, during times when people's, the Bible says, when, when hearts, men's hearts are failing them, what do they do? You look for someone to help you, don't you? You look for someone, but instead of looking to God for help, instead of it being a time when people's hearts repent, they turn more and more to the Antichrist. They turn to him more rather than God. And they worship him. So look at verse 24 here. It says, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Believers during this time will fall by the sword. Exactly as it says in Revelation 13.10. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. And this, this passage, this verse 24 says, And they shall fall with the edge of the sword and shall be led away indeed captive. Many Christians in their thousands and hopefully millions, that is the hope, the more martyrs there are, the more people are going to be saved, isn't it? Will be led away captive. They will be imprisoned. They will be tortured for their faith. 
He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. This book, Revelation, that we're reading today, is as much for the believers in that time, if not more, than for us today. They're going to be able to look at this particular verse with all this turmoil going around them. When they see their loved ones being dragged away, being killed and tortured, they're going to look at this and they're going to say, what's going to become of us? The temptation will be to lose heart. Many Christians will be on the run. They will be, being per- they will be persecuted. They will be killed. It will be a terrible time. But then scripture tells us, okay, keep in mind, those who are leading you into captivity will be taken captive. Those who are killing you with the sword will be killed with the sword. Here is your patience and your faith. And Luke 21, 27 and 28 says, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in cloud, in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. I have no doubt that those during the tribulation time, during the last, especially the last three and a half years, are going to have their Bibles reading them, and they're going to be reading it like a newspaper. Everything that's happening, they're going to say, this is what's happening, that's happening, that's happening. We're trying to look forward and say this is possibly going to happen and this is possible. These poor people are going to be in the midst and they're going to be seeing exactly what's happening and exactly the way, as is written, it's going to be unfolding before their very eyes. They will, they will be persecuted, tortured, killed for what they believe in. But the beautiful thing is that God promises... God promises, don't worry, you may be killed with the sword. He doesn't tell them he's going to save them from the sword or from captivity. He says to them, when you see all these things happening, lift up your heads. Your redemption is drawing nigh, which means Jesus will be back very soon. Their promise is from the one who keeps all his promises. That soon they will be redeemed. And it doesn't matter whether indeed they are alive or dead. It doesn't matter whether they're dead. Because Jesus can redeem them from death as well as alive. And the promise is that those who are wielding the sword against them, those who are taking them captive, indeed themselves will be taken captive and will fall by the sword. In other words, justice will be done. Justice will be done. God never forgets his own. When they were about to uh, take Jesus prisoner and Peter grabbed a sword and wanted to, wanted to start going uh, you know, left, right and centre and, and chopped off someone's the guard's ear, Jesus said to him, uh, put up again thy sword in its place. Put it back. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. And it's in a similar way, God is possibly telling these believers in this time, don't think to yourselves, because imagine if you're being persecuted. Imagine you are with your family during this time and the last thing you want to hear is a knock at the door. The temptation would be, if you had a gun... to blow away whoever came in through that door. Wouldn't you want to do it? To protect your family? The temptation would be to fight back, to protect yourself. But Jesus is saying, don't don't go that way. Because God will bring justice. God will judge whatever happens and he won't forget anything that you go through. Violence and retaliation, God is telling them and us, is, was never the answer and is never the answer.
In a similar way, Jesus was also identifying the believers to understand that victory will be his in the end. When he comes in power, he will not only bring to justice those who murder the believers, thinking that they're doing a service for mankind and the Antichrist, but also the Antichrist and Satan himself will be brought to justice. This gives a man patience, doesn't it? You can endure something. You can go through hardship. You can be wronged if you know and are confident that God will put it right in the end. You will endure hardship. You will endure suffering. You will see it through. If you don't have confidence that God will indeed judge it properly at the end, what are you, what are you likely to do? You are more likely to take matters into your own hands. And this is our challenge today as well. The challenge is not for us to take things into our own hands. Whenever you feel wronged, whenever you feel that, you're, that someone's done something against you, the answer isn't to take retaliate, to retaliate. The answer is to leave it with God. The answer is first to try to reconcile. The, the, the Bible says that we are to be the peacemakers of this world. God will judge. Here is the patience of the saints. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and faith of Christ. That's our call. To keep our faith in Christ. That in the end, Christ will put everything right. Regardless of what you've been through, what we're going through, what we will go through, inevitably we will go through hardships. Christ will put it right. Our faith in Christ should never be shaken. For those who have put their faith in Christ, God has already judged his own son for us. God judges perfectly. That was the, the, the title of my message today. God judges perfectly. He will judge the devil, the Antichrist. He will judge all those who have put their faith their faith in him rather than God he would, and he has judged his own son for us who have put our faith in him perfectly God judges perfectly and God also asks us to judge perfectly the Bible says judgment begins the household of God the only way we can judge perfectly is to humble ourselves before him once again Repent of any sin if you have it in your heart, if you're harboring any sin this morning that's stopping you from living that life for Christ. Humble yourself this morning, forsake it, repent and turn back to God. Allow God to plant, keep on planting seeds in your heart with his word. Never give up on reading his word. Never give up on it. You know, a plant never grows, doesn't grow overnight, does it? When a farmer plants seeds, he knows it takes a while to prepare the soil. It takes a while for the, the, the plant to come up. It takes a while for the seeds to come out and then for the fruit to develop. Sometimes we want things very quickly. Give God's word a chance to work in your life. Do it a step a day at a time. Keep your faith in Christ.